0: Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy
1: lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. (laughs) Yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously
0: changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together, we'll be turning history back to front and back again.
1: G'day, folks. Well, we've been moving around the world lately. Now, with the, the power of the internet, we've been able to talk to people outside of Australia. I know. And we've been able to talk a lot about places outside of Australia. So we're pushing the boundaries a bit further today. Mikey, tell us who you've got. Professor Georgie Ravullo. Great, Georgie.
0: How are you, mate? Good, thanks. <laughs> How are you? Look, now, let me set this up. Yes. You're Professor and Chair of Social Work and Policy Studies at the Sydney School of Education. Also, too, you're at Sydney University, adjunct professor in the School of Law and Social Sciences at the University of South Pacific. You're the first person mm. of Pacific Islander heritage to become a professor in Australia. I am. Yeah. That Excellent. Is, that is very cool. <laughs> Mate, Thank you've you. been published in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, as well as countless reviewed papers mm. you've been on The Drum you've been on SBS but here's the other thing too you've also appeared in Fat Pizza and Howzo's two comedy classics oh, yes. <laughs> you're a theatre sports tragic and mm. that's how I met you yes you were doing Rose McManus's show uh, slideshow yes at the Opera House which, the is, which is basically an improv show yes it was and um I came on one night as a guest, and we went to the bar afterwards, which may surprise you, Paul. <laughs> we had a few chats, and we, you know, we started talking about Pacifica. Mm. And it got me thinking, looking back at my high school education, what I know about the, the Pacific is Cook and the transit of Venus and <laughs> those dickheads on the bounty. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much it. And I'm afraid,
1: you know, coming from Blighty, I, I probably know even less. So, yo, know, please, Georgie, tell us today who... Or what do you want to talk about as the the sort of the howler? But maybe you want to start with what you see as the hero for your
2: um, your background. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be in this space with yourselves. I thought that yeah. I would look at with yourselves yeah. the hero being fluid sexuality in the Pacific mm. and the howlers being... Western modernity, including Christian missionaries. Wow.
1: Excellent. All right. Okay. We're going to get stuck into that. Let's start with that. First one there, you know, the sexual fluidity.
0: Before we jump in, this yeah. is this is something that's like front page fear stories in, in Australia and Western media at the moment. Mm. Let's face it, we're, we're going to a massive backlash
2: uh, against anything that's not considered to be binary sexuality. That that's right, that's exactly right, and that's where a lot of my work has been around right. is looking at how, in Western ways of looking at the world, it's very binary. It's either this or that, black or white, uh, straight or gay. Uh, So a lot of those binaries have then perpetrated and perpetuated labels that then stop such fluidity to occur, especially in sexuality and gender expressions. Mm. So prior to colonization in the Pacific Islands, Mm. many of our gender and sexual expressions was fluid. Right. We would have uh, sexual relationships with people, and it wasn't perceived as a point of morality, but those sexual relationships were seen as a point of social connectivity. Right. And an ability to then connect with others.
0: Right. So, so when you're saying you know, in that way, mm. it was more of a not, not so much a construct, but it was, it was a way of moving through the society.
2: Exactly. So people would have those social relationships that may include sexual, uh, sexual connections and relationships as a way of being able to connect to each other. Mm. So this, this reiterates this idea that for a lot of Indigenous cultures that we see in the Pacific, we're very much relationally driven. We're mm. very much collectively driven. So my connection with myself is embedded in my connection with others and
1: so does that mean that um, things like what we would call traditional marriage were not as important or was it were these relationships running alongside marriages and families
2: that's right so they were running alongside so you definitely had uh, different structures and systems in place to provide harmony and level of uh, civility shall we say but it was about about being able to express our sexuality in ways that was helpful for each other
0: now, of course, you know, we can't just say Pacific culture as if it's a, as if it's a monolith. Mm. Were there differences between various areas of the Pacific?
2: Definitely, definitely. So, generally, when we think about the Pacific region, we're thinking about three subregions, which again was actually named by colonisers. Yeah. So, you've got Polynesia, which means many islands. Mm. Then you've got Melanesia, which means black islands, because mm. uh, a lot of the the way which people look in the Melanesian Islands, like Fiji, like Vanuatu, like PNG, they've got darker skin with Afro Mm -hmm. hair, so that's why they were called the Black Islands. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Micronesia, which Mm -hmm. is at the the top part of the Pacific region. And so in each of those particular regions, you did have nuances, you had differences Mm -hmm. that would exist in the different islands, but there were some common practices, especially around that collective context of living. Right. Can you give us an example? Yeah, please. So it was interesting when the colonizers came, especially with the missionaries, they are the actual accounts that I've been able to utilize Mm -hmm. as part of some of the publications that I've put out over the last couple of years around this notion of sexuality being fluid in the Pacific. And from the actual accounts from the missionaries, we found that in places like in Samoa and French Polynesia, the missionaries would come into those respective places and would clutch their pearls in shock (laughs) around seeing males being very affectionate and uh, having sex with males and not actually making it a thing. It wasn't seen as you're an outcast now. It was something that was just done as part of, again, that social connectedness.
0: Mm. We'll talk more about colonisation later, but that would have uh, freaked the missionaries out, I'm assuming. Oh, my goodness, and then some, Mm. yes. (laughs) And what about
1: oral history and your own history how much still exists and how many recollections have been passed down from generation to generation between yourselves because you know the one thing I didn't want to do today is you know relying on accounts Mm. from missionaries and white people talking about it it's Mm. very if how much is is there of your own that you've got that you, you, you
2: survived through it, as it were? Definitely. So there's different stories that have yeah. been passed on through the different islands and generations that privilege diverse uh, characters that are sexually diverse and gender diverse. So mm. we'll talk about different uh, islands, like for example, Kumahina in the in Hawaii mm-hmm. the, the, that's considered like a third gender, or the fafafine in Samoa they're considered like a third gender. I've heard of fafafine. Yeah, yeah and in Fiji we've got vakasalewa. Uh, so the third gender is considers both a as as a gender expression, but also a sexuality in its own right. Mm-hmm. And so there are there is lots of different uh, folklore and stories that privilege such characters in our histories and mm. highlight the importance of such people in uh, in our social structures and systems.
0: So there is a, a, a tradition of these third gender people being heroes within the culture.
2: Very, very much so. They were seen as leaders. Mm. They were seen as someone that would actually hold and have knowledge and pass that in and and have that as part of what they would give back to the community.
1: Mm. And how much of that tradition survived? Because obviously I'm guessing the missionaries were desperately trying to stamp it all out. Is it something that's been revived or is it something
2: that survived it's something that's being revived so i'm currently doing some research through the university of sydney through the university of the south pacific in partnership with pacific sexual and gender diversity network based in fiji so that's psgdn and they are a network of different peak bodies from across the pacific islands mm-hmm. and we're doing uh, research on the lived experience of queer communities across the islands wow. and so I've, uh, I've spent the last couple of months traveling to six different countries so PNG, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Tonga, and Samoa. Mm. And we ran focus groups, which we call Talanoas, mm. a, a shared conversation about these particular areas and topics. And uh, in those particular conversations, we were specifically focusing on, again, gender and sexual diversity. And from those conversations, we heard a lot of these recounts of these oral traditions and histories, but also how we as queer people in the Pacific value add. I that's interesting right that's interesting so we've been focusing on our strengths and capabilities as well not just our challenges Mm. and one of the things that we heard especially from those that are considered third gender is that they can play multiple roles in different settings and circumstances so they can do the whole preparing for the food and the meals so traditionally what might be seen as women roles Mm. um, but then at the same time they can go outside and be chopping the wood preparing the uh, the earth oven um, climbing the trees Mm. um, lifting up heavy objects to set up the the tarpaulin at the front of the house, so they can move effortlessly between different roles and responsibilities.
1: And also act as an intermediary between the two as well, which I presume has always been a very important part of the so-called outsider, often ends up being the real insider, doesn't it?
2: That's exactly right. And that's part of the hero of fluid uh, sexualities and and, uh, gender expressions, is that in the context again of Pacific indigenous perspectives, everything is collectively driven everything is reciprocally driven right So we don't care who you sleep with. we don't care what your gender expression is as long as you contribute to mm. community.
0: So uh, actually what you're being, not judged on but you know your worth to the community is what you bring to the community exactly.
1: My big question, Judy, and this is what annoys me a lot about being a historian is because of course, how much weight we lend to written history and how much you know it 's not if it all history is often so often you know diminished or you know dismissed as oh it can 't be but yeah we don 't know really because that 's only all history as if just because some monk wrote it down, it makes it true, mm. as if someone 's been passing it down by generations by by oral
2: traditions, it must be untrue. How annoying as a research has that been for you? It has been quite annoying because one of the things that a lot of people who then do this analysis around the reliability of oral histories... A lot of that, again, comes from a Western and white yeah. gaze of of history, yeah, right, and yeah. storytelling. And if you look at the way in which First Nations communities retell their stories, once again, it's relationally driven. Mm, so mm. my ability to be accurate in the way in which I understand or recount mm-hmm. what is being passed on via the many generations, mm. there is that connection, that relational connection. Mm. So that's what keeps it real and authentic. But
0: also, too, as you say, there's that relation connection, which would mean – I'm I'm just assuming here – someone that comes in with a Western tradition of looking at these Mm -hmm. aspects is just not going to get it.
2: Misses quite a lot, yeah. That's exactly right. And we see that even with First Nations Australians and how they recount their Mm. histories as well.
1: Well, I was going to say, that's how I've come across it. It's like looking as a historian to the First Nations in in Australia, Mm. just how many times their oral history has been dismissed or how many times have been misread or misinterpreted because they've just been looking at it through, unfortunately, white eyes like mine. I'm as guilty of it as anyone.
2: That's right, that's right. And that's why I think it's really important that we continue to privilege the way in which First Nations perspectives can make sense of the way in which we understand our own histories.
0: Are there lessons from Pacific culture that we should be observing?
2: Yeah, very much so. I think one of the key lessons is that irrespective of who you are, who you sleep with, what your expressions are, you matter, you count, you fit in. Mm. And part of that is because you are part of something bigger. And I think that's something that we can learn from Pacific Indigenous perspectives on sexuality and gender. I think it's also this idea that we are always mindful of the idea that my individual well-being is your well-being, so yeah, it's very much reciprocally oriented. So I think we can learn a lot from Pacific Indigenous perspectives on that as well.
1: You're only as happy as the most unhappy person. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you've got to you've got to do it together. You're only as strong as your weakest link.
2: Exactly, because if you look at a Western way of looking at the world, very much oriented around the individual, mm-hmm. me, myself, and I. Everyone is out, out for their own good. Potentially, I mean, yes, we still want to support each other and, and support, you know, the well-being of others. But it's not embedded in the way mm. in which you understand self and others. And do you think it's
1: you're winning the war? Do you think do you think it's having an effect? Have you seen change? Obviously, Sydney's mm. quite a progressive city, yeah, you know, more than others perhaps, but. Do you think there is a feeling that people are taking your ideas on board?
2: I think there is. I think what we're also seeing is a shift away from accepting the status quo, that there's only one way of looking at things. Mm. Last year when the whole Manly Pride jersey... Saga Uh, occurred... Because you do a fair bit of work with the NRL, don't you? I do. So I've been working with the NRL for the last 10 years and most of my work has been now around counselling support for NRL players. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, I also was doing a whole heap of uh, cultural awareness training across the game. This goes back to even masculinity and the way Mm. in which masculinity is understood. And when the Manly Pride Josie saga occurred, I wrote an opinion piece that was published in the Sydney Morning Herald and it was titled, Don't Blame Pacific Island Cultures for Queer Fear. Blame colonization. Mm. And it was interesting because when I wrote that piece... I read that article. Yeah. I read that article.
0: There, there was a whole bunch of stuff saying that you know, the people who were against the Pride jersey were people of island descent right. and because they were devout uh, Christians.
2: That's right. And automatically, people thought that we were homophobic as yeah. a culture. But in that piece, I helped nuance this idea, right, that before colonisation we had those areas of flexibility and fluidity when it came to sexuality and gender. That's based again on the research that I've done. And so I think it's those sort of narratives that are starting to appear more broadly mm. in the wider conversation. Welcome back, folks. So
1: yeah, we've been talking about a very underrated hero in as much of you know, the the role of fluidity, I mean sexuality and gender in the whole of the Pacifica, and as we've already been talking, one of the main reasons, unfortunately, is because of colonisation and the way that it was just these traditions were trampled underfoot mm. defu- or driven out, as it were, and rebuked. So we're talking with Joji Raffula, Um Mikey. Yes. Professor
0: Joji Rufula. That's it. <laughs> and so when we talk about colonisation, now I, I was doing a little bit of thinking on, on the way here. Mm. When you look at the Pacific in terms of Western colonisation, the colonisers, they're predominantly and I, I know you, do, you know you your explorers a bit more than I do, Paul. <laughs> We're mostly talking Brits and the French when it comes to the Pacific? That's right, yeah. The Spanish, they got the Philippines
1: and then they sort of gave up and the, the Dutch really never came any further than the Portuguese had. So, you know, and the Brits tried to stop them coming any further as well. So it is very much a French and and, uh, and British
0: game. So the, the main thrust of, of the colonisers... You're looking at, what, the end of the 17th, early 19th century?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's where you had a lot of the missionaries come in at the same time. So mm. it was one and the same sort of movement, yeah.
0: Obviously, you the traders come first and then come the missionaries.
2: Well, it's interesting. So from varying accounts, we also saw that the missionaries were brought along to some of the additional voyages to connect and relate to the people. There was obviously a move from the church to evangelize the mm. region, and there was then a big uptake. And I think one of the biggest reasons why Christianity flourished in the Pacific is because of our collectivist view on family. Let's face it, this is a very, very tiny point, but some of the
0: most beautiful church structures mm. can be found on Pacific Islands. I mean, I've, I've been yeah. to Tahiti, and
2: they're, they're yeah. stunning, and they're full. They are. So in uh, in a lot of our Pacific cultures, going along to church has become an embedded part of what you do as a family. Mm. So you go along as a young person to church, not necessarily because you want to have a personal relationship with high higher power, but it's because you do go along because your family goes along mm-hmm. and a lot of our social interactions and other activities in community is attached to a church community. Mm. But I presume that
1: the Christianity practiced there has already got a quite strong Pacifica flavor. Is that from the
2: beginning? Yes and no. So I think we've embedded our identities within a Christian ethos because of this notion of it being community-oriented and communally uh, geared. There's definitely Pacific Christian type of practices that we, we celebrate in different denominations, uh, like White Sunday, which is quite a, a big celebration in some communities. Uh, but it's still very much Western Christianity.
0: I'm assuming the French bought the Catholic and the Brits bought what? A
2: <laughs> grab bag of everything. Yeah, I think there was a large Methodist population yeah, that came along. That's right. Yeah. So
1: the Methodists were obviously very strong in the 19th century mm. in the UK, and they sent a lot of missionaries, um, as they did in Africa as well. Uh, the French, purely Catholic at the time, um, and then of course you got you got the sort of Church of England, which made uh, major inroads.
2: That's right. And so going back to this idea of how does the Christian Church reflect Pacifica communities? Yes. What we find is actually it's the opposite. We find that the Christian church is reflected in Pacifica communities. Mm -hmm. And so this includes the way in which gender and sexuality is then perceived and even the roles that men and women in those binary terms actually carry out. Because that's the other interesting thing. Even prior to colonisation, our gender roles were fluid and flexible. Mm. Everyone would participate again in the context of helping out. And would you
1: use local language? Um, in, in the church services now? Yes. Or, or, and then, did you you, know, you you take the Bible and make it your own?
2: Yes. A lot of the Bibles that are used in each of the islands are translated in local languages. Great. So that's where, again, a lot of those uh, Christian perspectives have permeated Pacific practices and perspectives. And is that
1: a recent thing, or did that happen almost immediately, do you think? It
2: almost happened immediately. As the missionaries were coming in and converting uh, local population groups, there was a big move for such translations to occur at the same time. Time to assist with the evangelical uh, approach that they were implementing Mm. in the islands. Would the
1: missionaries try and learn local languages or were they just real sort of (laughs) dictators? Yes,
2: again, a bit of both. So you'll have people that would go in and learn the local language to engage and really provide that pastoral connection and support. Mm. But then you'll also have people that would demand that people would comply with the Western way of doing things. Was
0: was there ever a time on any of these specific islands where the... The use of of, of the mother language was denied, was, was it ever
2: made illegal? Or, or? Mm. There were some areas where it was made uh, illegal for you or it was frowned upon. So again, this idea that being able to speak in a particular, like English, mm. did enable you to connect further with the Christian uh, knowledge and language that was used in the Bible. Yes, there was still that connecting point that was being used with the translation, but again, it was going back to this idea of English or Western modernity right. that was being sowed across the different areas of the uh, the islands.
1: And what about the indigenous religions? Were they persecuted out of existence? What impact did Christianity have on them?
2: Yeah, so a lot of those traditional and tribal practices were judged and done away with in context of taking on Christianity. However, what's really fascinating is that we still practice that knowledge of spirituality being more than just the church. Right. So, for example, it's seen as taboo to look at yourself in a mirror at nighttime or whistle in the house at nighttime because you will evoke evil spirits. So Mm. we still have some of these other traditional practices and perspectives.
1: And so do you find now... Is there a reaction against Christianity amongst the Pacifica community because they see it as that sort of bygone age of colonialism and, and oppression or or is it as you say just become so amalgamated with with your own cultures now that you feel that it is part of what you've got to say as well as what what was given to you.
2: The latter, definitely, uh, where people, the, the Christian practices and perspectives have permeated the way in which we do Pacific life in different settings. Mm. It is interesting, though, there are more critical conversations being had, right, especially yeah. uh, amongst younger generations yeah. who have access to information beyond just What's in front of them? They're mm. able to access the internet and all those other websites that people are able to express their opinions.
0: Because I'm assuming that an actual, like an academic approach to Pacific uh, history, mm. is sadly and only it's only a, a recent. Uh, area sort of undertaken
2: by the people of the, of the region. Right. So we definitely, that is evolving. You're right, Mikey, in the sense of we are seeing more Pacific people take on these roles yeah. in mm-hmm. academia, which is great. Fabulous. Um, but it is it is an evolving space. And that's where we are getting some of those critical things. But even going back to that example of that opinion piece that I wrote for the Sitting Morning Herald last year, there was a mixed bag of responses. We had a lot of Pacific people really uh, applaud the sharing of such knowledges around pre-colonial perspectives on gender expressions uh-huh. and sexuality but I also had a bit of shade thrown by our church leaders um, yeah. around their understandings to the point where they they were they were calling me out. You can actually check out my socials; those comments are still there. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh wow! See,
2: I, I don't get, delete them. No, They're no. all there. <laughs> I immediately go to mute and block. I can't say that out loud, Michael. <laughs> well, if it, to be honest with you, I leave those comments there to show evidence as to why yeah. these – counter narratives need to come through Mm. because that was pushback you're saying from your own community that's right pushback from my own communities and a lot of the comments were around them saying that my account of history was made up Mm. wow
1: and i think that's the point isn't it because we've got to admit unfortunately we're still at the very much the beginning of this journey aren't we there's quite a lot a long way to go and maybe yeah we can talk again in another five years and hopefully we'll see some changes because yeah, from your point of view, do you see it as Mission accomplished, or
2: just mission started? Definitely mission started, and I think that's why it's important that you have Pacific people involved in these critical conversations. Exactly, because it is these histories are not made up; they Mm. are evident. The source data is out there, and we need to reclaim these Mm. particular narratives Mm. as part of our ability to celebrate who we are as Pacific people.
0: It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Professor. Thank you so much for. I I can't believe one drink after a show at the Opera House, and I've learned more about. Pacific history in the past half hour that I knew before. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Alright folks, so there you go Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line On all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta Whichever you prefer That's right, and always the same handle At the
0: rest is, hist. The rest
1: is hist, and you'll find all that in the show
0: notes And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment On whichever platform you happen to use It's always good to get your feedback Yes, keep it all coming, lots of fun And lots of maps <laughs> And lots of new guests to look forward to Paulie, we've got guests galore Each with their very own hero and howler